Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 44 for August MMXII. Kimberly Rockmore is currently out of the office right now. She's actually nursing a broken heart, but I won't get into that. Episode 44 is brought to you by this public service announcement. We shouldn't be in here. Let's go. Okay, follow me. What's the matter, you chicken? I can't jump that far. Okay, chicken, I'm leaving you here. Use your head, Sally. Lady J. There's nothing chicken about being smart. If you stop and think, there's almost always a better way. I use this plank. That's using your head instead of losing it. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are September's Batgirl number zero and Birds of Prey number zero, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, this is the first episode back from San Diego Comic-Con 2012, also known as Comic-Con International, since we don't know whether it will be moved uh, in the future or not. And yes, I did say, you know, maybe there would be a special, but to be honest, uh, as, you know, compared to last year, 
it wasn't as exciting, uh, you know, when people ask me how was it, I say, well, it wasn't as exciting as 2011. And I, I would say that the main reason for this is that it seemed really empty in what was offered. I mean, don't get me wrong, many panels offered all the time, but especially, you know, DC and Marvel panels, all the information that they were giving us were things that they had released a week, two weeks before. And it was just very repetitious. You just heard the same thing over and over again. So if you went from DC New 52 and Snyder talked, he would talk about what he's doing, you know, with Animal Man and The Rot and Batman and Joker coming back. And then if you went into DC Batman, he would go again into what's going on with Batman and all these things. So it was just very... Uh, you just sort of heard the same thing over again. And, you know, then there are creators uh, that don't share anything, you know, and we don't really know why that was. So, like, Gail Simone, kind of tight-lipped about what's going on with Batgirl, just very vague statements like, yeah, she's Batgirl, she's going to be encountering some villains. I mean, what does what does that even mean? So, in in that respect, it wasn't as exciting, and I think... Warner Brothers, uh, just Warner, I guess, home video, sort of dropped the ball, uh, I, I feel, with some things that they could have had some press opportunities, especially for Batman The Dark Knight Returns, that direct-to-video release that's coming out in September. No press things like they had for Batman Year One, no special preview on a Saturday like they had for Batman Year One. Really, the only uh, op- opportunities that we had for interviews, especially through the Batman universe, was for our DC Nation, uh, for Teen Titans Go, and for Beware the Batman. And even then, you know, we only had four creators total, and that was sort of sad because I feel like you could have gotten some really good press bringing back in the actors from the original Teen Titans because they're going to be on again. And I think that would have been great, but. So I feel like, you know, the ball was sort of dropped. But, um, you know, really what makes the experience is, like, the culture and actually being there and and getting to see the different booths. And first and foremost, being there with people that you love and and you really enjoy enjoy being around. And that's certainly Donovan and Josh for me because I think if I were to go by myself without them, you know, and just do my job, then it wouldn't be nearly as fun. It would be sort of lonely. So just to be able to go back at night and, and and just relax and talk about the day or read comics or, you know, chat or watch Aladdin as we did halfway. Uh, yeah, it, that's, that's really the way to go. So I do recommend if you guys ever go to San Diego, the experience is one thing, but it can get so overwhelming that I think it is good to go with somebody that you really enjoy being with and you have a camaraderie with them and they would be able to enjoy it with you as well because I, I think that even though you're you're with a quarter of a million people, you still sort of feel lonely, I'd say. But I do want to talk about some of the news that came out. Obviously, you know, it's been over the internet for a month now, so I'm sure it will be repetitious to you. Uh, many of the things I reported on for the Batman universe, so if you hear me over there, then you know of some of the things that I've talked about, whether comic-wise, which you can catch on the comic cast or on the regular show. First and foremost, I think I, I Steph Brown and Tim Drake and the revelations about them. Now, Steph Brown, I was in the Superman panel uh, just for kicks and giggles, and at first I was just going to go because Brian Kimmel was going to be there, and I thought, oh, he's going to talk about Smallville Season 11 because I've been reading that. And over Twitter... 
I said, you know, are you still going to be there? And he said, no, I'm actually not on that panel anymore. I've got my guesses for why not, but uh, I, I, I don't know, you know, 100%. So, no, he wasn't there. And so Kyrax, um, as she is known, or, you know, the Stephanie Brown Batgirl that showed up last year, she actually asked, she, she came up to the mic and said, you know, my question's for Brian Q. Miller, but he's not here. And there's a rumor, and indeed there was a rumor right before the the con began that Stephanie Brown, even though the solicits, sho- the solicits showed that she was going to be in Smallville as Nightwing with Batman, that she was going to be replaced by Babs Gordon and the dialogue change and everything, and she wanted to know, and everyone in the panel had no idea, and... Like, it legitimately seemed like they had no idea what was going on, and of course she made the comment, well, that's sort of more disturbing, which it really is when people in their own office don't know anything. Um, I think it came, I mean, she asked, I was at another panel with her, and she asked again, I don't know if that was a New 52, but again, they did not know, and then it really came down to one panel, of course, the one panel that I wasn't in, and finally Dan DiDio said, yes, that is correct. So, Steph Brown fans, if you wanted to see her, in Smallville Season 11, have Brian Q. Miller write her again. That's not going to happen. Now, the rumor is, and the rumor, the, the guy from which uh, this rumor is coming from is the same one that sort of had the rumor mill going about Seth Brown being taken out. The rumor is that in the next wave of books, Spoiler is going to have her own title. I, I don't know. You know, one could either argue that, hey, that does seem reasonable, especially if they took her out of Smallville Season 11. Why have her in there and then have her in a spoiler book? Maybe they took her out in order to save her. Or they're just not going to do anything with spoiler. How many years, you know, have, have, I will, I guess it seems like years, but people, well, you know, for Cascane fans, it has been years that people consistently ask, when are you going to use Cascane again? When are you going to use Cascane again? And now the question is, when are we going to see Wally West? When are we going to see Stephanie Brown? And people, you know, the creators are saying, I'd love to bring them back, you know, I love, but they don't know. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And whether that's like an I don't care or we're not dealing with that right now from editorial, who knows. But, you know, it just seems like Cascane's not coming back right now, and we sort of all have to deal with that in our own sad ways. And I I guess I'm sort of at this, like, pessimistic point that Steph Brown's not going to be used again either. And I could be pleasantly surprised, but I guess we'll see. The other shocking news was involving poor Tim Drake and the fact that he was never Robin, per se, but always Red Robin and... You know, you got to bring up these continuity errors, like him talking about being Robin in his own series and there being a picture about it and in Batman with the facial recognition and him talking about Robin. But, no, he was always Red Robin, and he never really wanted to detract from the previous Robin, Jason Todd, and, and take away from his memory. And that, that was a brutal setback for many Tim Drake fans. Um, You know, the Tim Drake that's been in the New 52, just like Babs, has not been the Tim Drake that we all knew and loved. He's lost a lot of the great characterizations. But But to hear this, that, you know, he was Red Robin, which he's Red Robin now, but, you know, about the classic Robin. I know that this was very heartbreaking for for Donovan, and I certainly really felt bad for him because, I mean, gosh, this has consistently been happening over in the Batgirl world as well. So I think those were the the two big uh, setbacks for the, the Bat community. Well, there were some exciting 
you know, news things. I, I went to a lot of the toy uh, panels for Dustin over at the Batman Universe, which I don't really go to. I mean, I like toys, but seeing a panel discussing them, unless there's something, you know, really uh, pertinent to me and my loves, I, I wouldn't necessarily do that. But I did learn a lot, and I actually really enjoyed it. Um, there are some exciting things that are coming out, like a Batman Unlimited line in 2013. It's going to have Penguin, Batman, and Batgirl, and the designs actually look pretty cool. But what I'm most excited about and what I think people were really ecstatic for is that uh, beginning in fall 2013, there's going to be a classic Batman TV line of uh, figures being produced. So we're talking uh, Burt Ward and Adam West and hopefully Yvonne Craig and just, they didn't show any images so it was a big tease but everyone was really excited about it and I think that that would be, I mean that's great, how come no one has thought about that before? Also, I guess the other big news really came from the DC Nation. And I do have to say that the DC Nation panel was weird to begin with because Kevin Smith was the moderator. And, I mean, I have nothing personally against Kevin Smith, but in your San Diego catalog that you get, and, you know, schedules, very elaborate, there will be a K with a circle around it to tell you that it's all ages friendly. And when you put Kevin Smith on as moderator like that takes away from that so you potentially have a room filled with kids and then you have Kevin Smith moderating and you know proof is that within the first five minutes I mean the f-bomb and several other words were were dropped and that sort of continued throughout and I just it wasn't the best decision I don't know why there wasn't a DC or a Warner Brothers guru there uh, but, you know, people, fans of, of Green Lantern, they had a pretty long trailer with three one to two minute uh, short scenes, one of them showing Guy Gardner, one of them showing Parallax and the Manhunters, and then one of them showing Chip, the, the squirrel-esque Green Lantern. And then they had um, Young Justice, and that trailer was shorter than Green Lantern, and I don't know if that, if there's some message, hidden message in that. First, it rehashed sort of the end of of the new stuff that we had seen, especially with all the Artemis stuff. I don't really want to spoil that. And then it, like, whoo, man, really, really fast images. You felt like you were on acid, just bam, 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 all these different things going on. Let me think. Oh, we saw a static shock. We saw a death stroke. Another one, uh, Tigress, a.k.a. Artemis. And, uh, well, we can only assume since she does have that... Well, see, I don't want to spoil again. But, yeah, she's kind of undercover right now. That's all I'll say. But just, I mean, everyone, you could tell that was, like, the one thing everyone really wanted to know about because that when that was talked about, when the name was said, everyone just went into an uproar. So you can really tell that Young Justice has a great deal of fans. And then, uh, well, the DC Nation panel was mainly about these new shows that are coming out, but where the Batman and the Teen Titans Go series, uh, which is has been taken from that Teen Titans short and then put into an 11-minute little, little serial that they will have. And there's sort of less about that than the other ones, so I'll start with that. So 11 minutes rather than, you know, a half-an-hour cartoon. It's all comedy. There's nothing really serious. It is different somewhat from the original series, but they did try to find an in-between of the designs and everything. I guess that's kind of it. I mean, original voice actors, which everyone really loves. And it's just, I mean, 
you know, you had to get used to the regular Teen Titans, and I think you'll have to get used to this because it's not going to be the other series. It is all fun and games all the time. Yes, there will be repeat villains and everything, but just look at the, the short, and I think you'll get what the tone will be throughout. But Beware the Batman, lots of information coming from that. Obviously, uh, Katana, the statement, the Blakian statement was, you know, she's the girl. So I guess the totem girl that we've got there. She is going to be less of a uh, a sidekick to Batman and more of a partner. Uh, and she's not only the girl, but she's more like the Robin. Like, they're not tackling Robin yet. Katana is that character right now. And she does have some sort of connection to Alfred, which will be explored. Batman... This is taking place um, in the first, within the first five years of his career, and he really can't turn off his need to fight crime, and, and he's really being proactive. He's sort of turned off all, or removed all normalcy of being human to really get to, to peak crime fighting. He, he cuts down as much sleep as possible, only what he needs. He doesn't really eat. And then you have Alfred, and he's in his 30s, and they sort of described him as James Bond slash Sean Connery in The Untouchables. He's a, he's a working class Brit, and he trains Bruce, and he works with him. Um, how this character is going to be changed after the events of Aurora, Colorado, and, and that press release that they said they were going to tone it down. I'm not really sure. Some of the uh, the bad guys that they've got, uh, Mr. Toad, Professor Pig, Anarchy, which they describe as the White King to Batman's Black King, Humpty Dumpty, Magpie, Metamorpho, and there was a little tease to the Outsiders. Babs Gordon is going to be in the show, and she's described as the precocious daughter of Lieutenant Gordon, who works with computers, so of course, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. She sees Katana, and she realizes that girls can be heroes, too. So we'll see how that will turn out. Overall, I think that was mostly what they said. They did talk a little bit about the DC Nation shorts, and we saw Doom Patrol and a Black Lightning family and Justice League of Animals, things like that. And one of the surprise things, which was interesting, if you remember the final episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold, there was that, man, what was it, like three minutes, one minute short of Batgirl with Killer Moth and Batman, and you just thought, oh my gosh, is this a tease for what could be? And interestingly enough, we were told that uh, that was actually something that Lauren Montgomery had done for a direct-to-video release. It was sort of like a promo thing, and probably the most expensive promo thing. And of course, it wasn't picked up, and the producers at Batman the Brave and the Bold decided to, you know, still use it, and they put it in there. So, people, if you wanted to know what that was, yes, that is what could have been Batgirl Year One. So we can all sort of shed a <laughs> shed a tear on that. I think that's mostly what I have, like news-wise, that I, I feel like you would be interested in. There are some other bits of news not related to San Diego Comic-Con, and one of them is there is a Stephanie Brown fan series coming out, and a web series is called Batgirl Spoiled, and it's created by Sax Carr and Marisha Ray, and it's going to be following Stephanie Brown, the third Batgirl, as she endeavors to understand her place in Gotham and the Bat family, and you can check out a trailer of that really good quality um, you're going to have Oracle, Batwoman, Renee Montoya. 
you can check out the project's Facebook page. And, uh, well, the first episode, I'm pretty excited about it, and, and I believe you can get to that on YouTube. And, hey, you know, if we don't have Steph in Smallville Season 11, we don't have her in Spoiler. At least we can see her done right by fans that love her. The other piece of news I have is very much related to Batgirl Year One. If you remember, Batgirl Year One was a potential movie to come out, but really the bigwigs at Warner Home Video said that because Wonder Woman didn't sell as well, they're just going to focus on the males, right? Batman and Superman, the big two. And of course, you know, I have an issue with that. And sort of the same thing is coming on with Super Best Friends Forever. Teen Titans Go! gets the green light, yes. But this one doesn't really have a chance because it is female-led. They don't think that it would be worthwhile. And so the nerdy bird over at the bird and the bat, uh, dot tumblr.com, she's going to try and experiment. I'd also like to say that it's a challenge. She makes some, uh, some good points here. Warner Brothers does not believe a girl show has the same selling power as a boy show, and I'd like to prove them wrong. I'd point them to the huge successes that were Lauren Faust's Powerpuff Girls and My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. I tell them women make almost all the purchasing decisions for their household, that they are seriously underestimating how much parents spend on their daughters, and that children aren't the only co- consumers of animated TV shows and the related products. I could do that, but what I like to see right now is all of you do that. Reblog or like this post, so you have to go to thebirdandthebat.tumblr.com. If you'd not only watch a Super Best Friends Forever television show, but buy products based on it, money talks, remember. Add your own commentary or not, but see, let's see what the numbers say. So basically, kind of what I put out there two years ago for the um, the petition, you know, they say that the females do not sell, but I, I totally disagree. Um, and I know that some people, it may take a little bit getting used to subooths, but I think it's captured the hearts of many people, and I think that, you know, these one-and-a-half-minute shorts don't do, you know, that little trio justice, and there could be so much more. So definitely go over there, and I've also linked it on my own site, so you could do that as well. And, you know, speaking of subooths, if you listen to the Batman universe, uh, I annoy Dustin sometimes, or all the time, with the burrito sometimes when I'm uh, introing, and... I, I guess just happenstance. My friend Don walks in a hot topic and sees a shirt that, in fact, says "Burritos, please" and has Batgirl from Super Best Friends Forever, and he snatches it and sends it to me. And all the while, he's just very vague and cryptic, saying, "I found this T-shirt. I, you know, I need your address." And and here I get it, and I crack up during the middle of the Batman universe when I open up the package. But uh, thank you very much to Don, and this is like my t-shirt. This is meant for me because of all the times I say burritos. I do have two different listener emails. One is from Michael. Hello, Stella. I have begun listening to the Batgirl to Oracle podcast. The last few episodes, I need to catch up with the older ones. Well done. I believe you asked for listener input regarding continued reviews of the New World's Finest series on the podcast. I vote yay, team. I'm thoroughly enjoying the new series. I'm picking up issue number four tomorrow, yay, number two, and would like to hear your thoughts as well. On an unrelated note, I am a huge fan of the original Justice Society. If you're reading Earth 2, I would love to hear your thoughts on that series so far. I hope you're doing well and looking forward to the next podcast. 
Okay, well, yeah, definitely I'm going to continue with World's Finest, you know, just as long as everyone else is okay with it and, and the, the book retains um, a somewhat good quality. I am also reading Earth 2 because I, too, like Justice Society, and I thought, well, if they're not going to have one in their real form, then perhaps this is as close as I can get. Wow, it's, it's wildly different just because, I mean, it is Earth 2, so I guess they're going to make it like that, but just all the different characters thrown in, and then we just saw Hawkgirl. One thing that... I sort of have issue with, and I saw this somewhere else on the internet as well, is the fact that how much it was really pressed and advertised and shaking the world that Alan Scott was going to be gay. And, okay, so he's gay, and, and you know, then he proposes to his love, and then all of a sudden his lover dies. And I just thought to myself, what was the point of all that if you're just going to to kill his lover? So, I I don't know. I feel like you could have done that with, with any heterosexual character as well. I just don't think, you know, we're, we're thrown a lot of um, gay characters nowadays, and I don't think they make as much as an, of an impact now as, you know, Batwoman and Renee Montoya did in the past. I, I think that there should just be, like, a good characterization around them and... I don't know. I, I just feel like it's very on the surface when they do it now. But anyway, uh, so that's, I mean, I'm enjoying it, but it takes a little bit getting used to. Um, ho- I'm looking forward to issue number zero to see how the heroes, you know, before them were sort of made or, or came about. But we'll see how this team forms because right now they're just individual characters the only two people that have had interactions really, Hawkgirl and Flash, and I'm just waiting for everyone to get together and to see how they relate together. The other email I had was from Cool B. Greetings and salutations. Huzzah, congrats on beating Arkham City. Not played it on Arkham or Arkham Sound since all my game time and money goes towards City of Heroes and, of course, Avengers Alliance on Facebook. That's a little hint. Yeah, I play that a lot. I, I enjoy that uh, game a lot. Hope you have fun, or had fun, depending on when this is read, at San Diego Comic-Con, and I look forward to experience at least what some, at least some of the con vicariously through you and others. I have enjoyed the other Ben 10 shows and will check out Omniverse, but like you, I'm not sold on the animation style. I'm not sure on all of them, but there have been some new shorts during DC Nation, even though the main shows have been in reruns, mainly a continuing serial focusing on the Atom. Keep up the great work and fly on Babs Lover Cool B. P.S. Sorry, this is late. Oh, no apologies necessary. Yeah, that is one thing that I found out by accident that... The, yeah, the DC Nation shorts have been continuing, even though Green Lantern and Young Justice have been on reruns for at least three months now. So I did miss, you know, the Catwoman slash Batman anime story where they're, I think, in China and, and fighting Bane. So I'm going to have to find some way to watch those. And the Adam one, I mean, hopefully that, that could be good. So I'll have to find some way. I watched it this morning, but in my opinion they were the animal man was definitely a repeat i remember the one where he, the sand castle and the crab he was very and then dark side and uh i think that the little claymation people that make yeah Wallace and gromit that one was also a repeat so see the the time that i watch it it's old i can't remember if i've read this before on a previous 
episode, but Drew actually wrote in after episode 42 because I was asking about Pre-Crisis Huntress's prior appearances since I wasn't really sure where she had showed up before Batman Family. And uh, he said that he was a total GSA, JSA nerd. This is from Drew. Um, she first appeared in DC Superstars number 17, then was in All-Star Comics number 69 through 71, after which her Batman Family appearances started, running concurrently with her appearances with the JSA and All-Star Comics. After Batman Family ended came the Wonder Woman backup strips. Can't speak for everyone, but I'm glad you're covering World's Finest, since that and Earth 2 are the only DCU books I'm currently reading. Keep up the good work. So thanks for that, Drew, because certainly I... I mean, I do some research sometimes, but it's it's hard to, like, know timelines of when certain books are going on and, and when certain characters are in certain books. And, of course, I mean, Huntress isn't really my priority, so it would be bad if I did not know it about Batgirl, but uh, luckily I do know what's going on there. So thank you very much for for writing in. Remember, you can write in via email, uh, backworldtooracle at gmail.com, or you can comment on the webpage, basically, under under posts, things like that. So I do check those. I do check those. Well, that is it. We're going to start with the vintage reviews, and actually, you know, to throw something like a you know, something in that's a little different. We're going to start with the letters page. And this actually, this isn't me being inventive. It's actually just because the Batmail sort of starts off the entire issue. So first there was an important editorial message. Hello, readers. This issue of Batman Family represents a bold new approach to the dollar comics, and I felt it deserved a bit of recognition and explanation. The issue may feel thinner than previous ones, but it actually contains more material than preceding issues. How is this possible? Simple. No ads. When we realized that we would have to cut down the number of pages in our dollar comics, we found that by some rather tricky juggling, we could just do away with the ads and not any of the story and art. With the extra added bonus of both inside covers and the back cover thrown in, this made for quite a handsome package. We like it. We hope you will too. So remember, it may feel thinner, but it's actually more material than you were getting in Dollar Comics before. Count them if you don't trust us, then read them and enjoy. Alan Milgram. Dear Bat Bunch, well, well, Batman Family number 17 was what Dollar Comics should be like. Stories that are intelligently interconnected show each hero to his or her best advantage and provide a healthy slice of their private lives as well. Very good. I originally wasn't in favor of your putting Batman into the book, fearing that he would end up meddling in everyone else's stories, but if future Batman tales are as good as Scar's, you can forget my objections. The story itself was good, despite featuring another of the bizarrely motivated villains Jerry Conway seems to specialize in lately. And the Huntress's intervention was priceless, even if her excuse for coming to Earth-1 was a bit lame. What she finally told Batgirl in the second story was much more plausible. We all have these self-doubts at times, especially women trying to make it in traditionally male occupations. Oh dear. Also good were Batman's well-concealed but evident uncertainty about just what to do with his newfound daughter and Robin's realization that his own life might be drastically different if Earth-1 had had a Huntress too. Horoscopes of Crime, the Batgirl Batman Huntress story, was also good, especially the exchanges among the three heroines on page 19 through 20. But Poison Ivy and Catwoman's attempted crime seemed a bit too amateurish, especially their gullible agreement to steal the peace pipe, which obviously had more special value than Madame Zodiac was willing to reveal. 
Finally, Manbat. Boy, has this character come a long way. Sometimes the story is the most interesting one in the book. That wasn't true in this-ish because of the extremely high quality of the book, but there's a demon born every minute was still devilishly good. The demon was worked in quite believably, and the scenes in the waiting room and the cop's reaction to the two bizarre heroes were terrific. Congratulations on the birth of Rebecca Elizabeth. I've been rooting for a girl since Francine got pregnant. It's obvious that Rebecca is a child with latent powers so great that Morgan dare not miss tapping them. After all, with parents who've both taken man-bat pills on numerous occasions, how could she help but be affected? I'm looking forward to future issues. Too bad dollar comics only come out six times a year. Margaret O'Connell, New York, New York. After that overview of Batman Family Number 17, we'll move on to some capsule critiques, of which there are many more than you'll see printed here. Response to our first dollar issue was overwhelming, and we thank all of you for your support. I do have to say about that previous letter, um, the Man Bat Baby sort of reminds me of um, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, and they had a baby, and then when you found out that Jessica Jones was actually one of the scrolls during Secret Evasion, I remember a lot of people wondering if the baby would be a scroll baby because she'd have she would have been drinking scroll milk. I don't know if anything has come of that uh, because I don't really read Avengers. I started to, but but dropped it. So someone else will have to tell me that. But it just sort of reminds me of that. I mean, yeah, if she's got two parents like that, the, the chances are that something is going to happen. And I mean, you look at Peter Parker having Spider Girl as his daughter. Like if it's innate to the DNA, it it chances are good. Dear Editor, the past few issues of Batman Family treated us to trip after enjoyable trip to the light side of Batman's world. The first dollar comic took us back to the night dark work of the Batman, different but no less enjoyable. I especially enjoyed the way Jerry Conway portrayed Robin, young, impetuous, and determined, yet all too fallible and human. His reaction to meeting the Huntress was priceless. Too bad Robin didn't follow through on his hunches and rescue his mentor and his girlfriend, but that closing scene with Laurie was quite nice indeed. As for Batman, his character was in perfect focus. His parting from Helena and his exposure of Desmond Mallard for what he really was were two very memorable scenes in particular. Gary Thompson, Dearborn, Michigan. Dear Editor, Scars was a fine example of why Jerry Conway is one of the best writers in the comics industry, and this fine story was also lucky enough to be illustrated by a man who is no stranger to Batman. Jim Aparo's illustrations help us visualize the Dark Knight detective as he should be portrayed. The surprise appearance of the Huntress made the issue that much more enjoyable. It was nice the way you worked things out, so she would be the pivotal point of all three stories, and it helps for continuity, even though two different writers were involved. Seeing the Huntress throw Robin for a loop was perhaps the most comical scene ever to depicted in comics. Philip M. Botwinick, Woodhaven, New York. And then the second page. Dear Editor, Mike Golden's art on the Man Bat strip has been a real credit to DC so far, but now, with There's a Demon Born Every Minute, he has gone from an extremely talented beginner to a mature artist. His renditions of the characters were sterling. His Batman was great, his Huntress as good or better than Stanton's. His back row streamlined and sexy, and he did the usual excellent job on Manbat and Friends. But his Etrigan, good lord, not even Kirby made the demon look so fierce, so frightening, and yet so heroic. When all the DC comics go to 40 pages, please find a place for this remarkable character somewhere, or at least make him a regular supporting character in the Manbat series. And if you do manage to get his own feature placed, it is certain that Mike Golden must draw it and Bob Rosakis must write it. Bob captured the spirit which made the demon's own mag so enjoyable, and 
incredibly good dialogue helped immeasurably. Listen, I don't want you to think I'm trying to tell you your business, but I think a Razaka's Golden Demon is just too strong a possibility for a successful series to not try out. David A. Jones, Horse Cave, Kentucky. You'll be happy to hear that the demon will be soloing in this very magazine beginning next issue. But the series will not be in the hands of the Rosaka's Golden team you want. But you do get half your wish. Golden will indeed handle the art chores, but the script will be by Len Wayne. Ooh. Demon fans since Kirby created the character. Hope that'll satisfy you, BR. Poor David, he doesn't know what he's in for, and I'll get to you. Because this is the final Batman family, people, and I'll let you know what happened. Because everyone, look, everyone writes as if... And even the writers within writes as if it's continuing on, so it's kind of a shock to see it go. Dear Editor, Man Bat is without a doubt my favorite feature in Batman Family. It is well written, beautifully drawn, and keeps my interest from issue to issue. Two things really stand out in my mind about There's a Demon. One being the first meeting between Man Bat and the Demon. I was primarily impressed by the scene of Etrigan standing calmly amid the fire and ruin gently cradling the newborn child. It makes me think there's a lot more good in this demon than I've been believing. In the same sequence, there's a casual gesture by Etrigan to inform Manny of what he's done. By doing this, Bob Rosakis avoided a needless fight between the heroes, if only more greetings were handled in this manner. The second thing was the defeat of Morgan Le Fay. I know it wasn't meant to be humorous, but I almost fell on the floor laughing. With all the power of the Philosopher's Stone at hand, Kirk Langstrom d didn't devise an elaborate trap or prison to hold Morgan forever. No, instead he just turned to stone, and while Etrigan was exuberant over their victory, Kirk was more concerned about getting back to the hospital. A tip of the hat to Mr. Rosakis for a fun moment. Mike White, Makana, Illinois. Speaking of getting a laugh from the Man Bat story, our next correspondent comments on another chuckle. B.R. Dear Al, this is a fan letter for one panel of Batman Family Number 17, specifically panel 3 of page 13 of the Man Bat story. What better comment on the human comedy than that cop's ex uh, remarks? When superheroes become so passe that we can criticize how they look, in any case, I got a good laugh out of it, thanks. Steve Feldberg, Columbia, Missouri. So there's a cop, he's got kind of this... Uh, like distasteful expression and he says cripes whatever happened to heroes who look like heroes those two are the ugliest suckers I've ever seen that's interesting you know if uh, if this were modern day you'd have the uh, the Michaela Mulroney picture of not impressed that's basically what it would look like dear Michaela Mulroney is a uh, gymnast, a USA gymnast, BTW, so you'd have to look her up there. Uh, Dear Al, the Batgirl Batwoman 100's tale was good. Madame Zodiac is the most intriguing villainess, and I look forward to her future appearances. It's about time that Batgirl got a foe she can call her own. I also enjoy the Catwoman Huntress portion of the tale. Barbara Zakas showed a feeling for DC's latest femme fatale that is matched only by her creator, Paul Levitz. Her battle with the Earth-1 version of her mother had beautiful characterization and was one of the best parts of the story. Chapter 3 had great team action with the three bat ladies acting as if they'd been a team for years how about all the superheroes of earth one and two getting together to form their own super team i think it would be great i feel like that happens and by the way the first page of the issue the frontispiece by jim starlin was to say the least awe-inspiring did he write the poem too never has the character of the batman been captured in so few words that one page gave us the essence of the batman and summed him up beautifully robert salyan citrus heights california it was editor 
Alan Milgram who penned the poem on the first page. And for those of you who are Huntress fans, we've got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that she'll be leaving the Batman family after this issue. But the good news is that her daddy, Paul Levitz, is hard at work on a three-issue stint for her in Showcase. Watch our magazines for the announcement of which issues BR. A personal note to editor Al Milgram of the Batman Family comic, Dear Al, the next time you make another issue of Batman Family, please put Batmite in it. Please. Jimmy Johnson, Louisville, Kentucky. We can't do it in the very next issue, Jimmy, but our plans for call for the long-awaited appearance of Batmite in Batfam number 23. Get ready for it, Bob Rizaka. See? See this? 23? It won't exist. But anyways, I'll talk about what happens uh, with all of that at the very end, how this sort of this series ended, since it is the last one. So as uh, Bob, I guess it was really Milgram, Al Milgram, summed up at the beginning, all new, no ads, a dollar, lots of stories. It was great. So let's get into it. Batman Family number 20, Peril of the Power Sower featuring Batgirl and Robin and guest starring Red Tornado and the Elongated Man. The cover date for this was October, November 1968. Also in this issue were Enter the Ragman featuring Batman and Private Eye Man-Bat featuring Man-Bat and Jason Bard. Writer for this particular story, Bob Rosakis, artist Don Heck, and John Collardo, letterer Clem Robbins, and colorist Jerry Serpe. Robin is transported from the campus of Hudson University to the JL satellite 22,300 miles above the Earth and asks to be sent to D.C. right away to help Batgirl out. Before he leaves, Elongated Man wants to tell Robin some other things that have been going on at the Teddy Roosevelt power generating plant across from the city. The power all of a sudden shut down on the hottest day in D.C., and Elongated Man sent Red Tornado to check it out. There he discovered a giant man siphoning all the power from the generators. Unfortunately for Reddy, the villain zaps his power. Robin takes on the mission after learning that J.L. are on another case and is sent down to D.C. Outside the plant, the police warn Robin that Batgirl went in but never came out. Once inside, Robin sees Reddy out of commission and Batgirl in some sort of energy cocoon. Batgirl relates to Robin what happened up until he arrived, where she called him on the phone but was caught. During the backflash, Batgirl tries to distract the villain with the batarang, but it only works for a moment when he captures her within the energy cocoon. After the story, Robin uses some tension wire to siphon off the energy cocoon. Batgirl and Robin ride back to the city on Batgirl's new cycle and see the villain, called the Power Sower, coming through with a message on patriotic duty, that the people must band together and be more conservative in power usage. The dynamite duo follow the energy flow and find Power Sower. Batgirl tells Robin the plan, and they shut down the power station, but apparently Power Sower can also absorb solar power. Just as Power Sower is about to disintegrate Batgirl, Reddy sweeps her out of the way, newly recharged by Elongated Man. Power Sower tries to destroy a nearby apartment building in order to distract him, but Red Tornado saves all the residents in a flash. Then Batgirl and Robin go with Plan B, using bat cables to siphon off power. Robin goes in for a punch and knocks Power Sower's head off. Robin erroneously believes him to be a robot, but Batgirl tells him it is actually a woman. Epilogue. We find out the woman was a descendant of Betsy Ross, with a genius IQ and mechanical facility to match. She used both of these to become a symbol behind which the nation could rally. Reddy makes the point that all she had to do was continue to be a villain, and she would rally the people that way. Batgirl offers the crew some coffee, but is turned down by all, so she just decides to go home and wash her cape. Well, this issue 
really began in a somewhat confusing manner. We have a juxtaposed image of, um, or juxtaposed images of Robin at Hudson U, and then Robin at DC, and then we have this confusing narration box with uh, uh, 10 seconds after fade out, and then the stories go on, and then there's a, a narration box that says 10 seconds after fade in. I had to read it slowly and a couple times, to be honest, to make sense as to what was going on, but if you do go back and read it if you're confused it, it does make sense in the end it was great to have two leaguers assisting in this mission and you know while I feel like there would be other leaguers to come in not everyone is out in, uh, in outer space working on something I guess it is nice that elongated man trusts Robin so much to go in on his own I like how this story really plays in with some issues of today DC is encountering some really hot temperatures perhaps not now but this summer has been crazy and the power being out and, and that was something that happened this summer in many places because of the crazy duration that happened for me uh you know i was encountering scorching temperatures with four days of no power so that was intense but energy converse conservation is also a really big topic and i think that it's really reached its height with al gore I really like that we finally seem to have a big supervillain fight for Batgirl and Robin because it seems like they only fight Cavalier and Killer Moth and, and, and the likes of those and then normal human bad guys like mob bosses. They're really challenged here uh, and, and they really have to plan it out um, and, and figure out what they need to do and what's the best, what is the best strategy and, and it was just great to see them working well together and working smart. And then, of course, there is a, a Scooby-Doo-esque reveal where Power Sower is really a normal human being. She seems a bit of an eccentric character, and just because we add Betsy Ross's name to the fold doesn't mean we can really take her cause or the, the means of which she's doing what she's doing any more seriously. I think that just sort of adds something, but, I mean, just tossing it in at the end doesn't really make any difference. Now, at one point, Batgirl and Robin say, let's, you know, it, we have to do this power siphoning with our bat ropes at a very specific time. And here, I don't know what I was thinking would happen. Maybe, like, count to 10, maybe a minute. But no, they actually count to 100, which I thought was kind of interesting and would take a long time. And how do you know that you're counting at the exact same rate? I liked the joke uh, that Robin makes about the heat and the benefit of wearing short pants. I was a little annoyed that we again find Batgirl stuck in a bubble of sorts. We've seen her stuck in other similar situations, having to be saved by the male or the males. You know, why does she have to be the damsel in distress? And then the final joke uh, where she's going to go wash her cape. Yikes. I guess that is the 70s version of I can't go out with you tonight, I have to wash my hair, which some females use these days. I see it in TV shows anyways. And the GAL, the Justice League, don't really treat her any differently like they treat Robin. And this is either a good thing or a bad thing. No, they don't treat her like a female who doesn't belong there, but they aren't exceptionally welcome either. I mean, they delay Robin and helping her until Elongated Man can tell his story. And then, of course, they don't really want anything to do with her at the end and just shove her along to drink coffee alone. Well, I never, I don't know, you'd think they'd be more welcoming. 
Now, is this, this is what I ask you, because obviously it wasn't planned, is this a fitting end to the Dynamite duo? It was certainly a powerful enemy to match them up against, and it does leave the door open for future interactions. Because they didn't know this magazine was ending, you can't really tie it up well and, and have the two heroes shake hands and say sayonara. So it was a great enemy to end with, but... The ending, I think the epilogue is probably not the best to end with. I give this 7 out of 10 bats. And next up, we have the final appearance of Huntress in the Batman family. Trial by Fire, the final part of this uh, Fire in South Gotham story, featuring Huntress. Writer Paul Levitz, pens for Joe Statton, anchor Bob Layton, letterer Todd Klein, and colorist Adrian Roy. The issue begins with Huntress tied up in a burning building, trying to figure out what is going on. She quickly recaps everything that has led up to this point, then decides to get out of the chair she's tied to by falling backwards and breaking it. She drops her cape as soon as it catches on fire, then climbs up to a barred window. She uses her vanadium steel crossbow as a crowbar and pops two of the steel bars loose. Back home, she takes a shower and contemplates what to do since she knows that Gresham is behind the South Gotham fires, but she has no proof. She's convinced she can get the proof somehow, but she wonders if Gresham knows that Helena and Huntress are one and the same. She decides to lie low until she finds something so that Gresham continues to think she's dead. For that same week, Gresham also is waiting. When he makes his public reappearance, Huntress tails him. Later on TV, Gresham is speaking to Gladia Grant, uh, I mean reporter Mary Ann, that he is going to prove to the federal government that they must intervene in the urban crisis when he gives a grand tour. As he begins his tour, we learn that his ultimate plan is to end up in the governor's mansion, using politics to make a profit. Moving through a building on the tour, Gresham falls through some floorboards, and Huntress is waiting below. She accuses him of the fires and tosses one of his firebombs at him. Gresham pleads his innocence, and the firebomb goes off accidentally. Unfortunately, Huntress cannot save him, and he dies a fiery death. On the news, Marianne states that despite his death, the government is going ahead with the urban aid program. Chief O'Hara believes the death to have been an accident, and Huntress decides not to shed a tear since he caused hundreds of deaths himself. Well, I do have to say that first scene, you know, Huntress tied up in a burning building, attached to a chair. I'm really reminded of Rachel and Harvey tied up in the Dark Knight movie. She sure makes it out easily, and then finds it easy to relax in a scandal's bathrobe later. Uh, that was a little ridiculous there, that just go home and sort of don't take your work with you. I found it interesting that, you know, Helena goes through how Gresham could know that she is Huntress, but this really doesn't come to anything later on in the story. Even at the end, he doesn't come forward with this knowledge, if he indeed has it. I'm glad we finally find out Gosham's, uh, Gresham's motives for the fire because I knew it wasn't just for Gotham to get a renewal plan. There's always, or there at least should be, a why to what's going on. Now, why does Huntress set the trap at the end like she does after saying she needs to find proof, lying low for a week and then tailing him? What did she expect to get out of him? Was the end an interrogation tactic, using the firebomb as a fear device? Either this is a plan that is not well thought out, or the writing was not thought out because it, there's like two different options, like choose your own adventure, and the one adventure she was choosing, she ended up on the other, the other path. So I don't really know how that happened. And why does Gresham plead his innocence right up to the end, especially since he tried to have Huntress killed? Why not come clean? 
or at least, you know, reveal his devilish plan. I mean, the way he pleads his innocence really makes it seem as if he is innocent, which really doesn't jive with what we've seen thus far. I think it would have made more sense to have him be evil at the very end, and I think that, again, this this was sloppy writing. Uh, it just didn't follow with what the character had been doing to have him basically begging. I'm surprised Huntress was so negligent as to just simply toss a firebomb, and then she doesn't even feel sorry that um, her own negligence killed him. It seems, I mean, characters, remember Batgirl, Stephanie Brown, and, and when that one um, security officer fell out of the window and how bad badly she felt? And this has happened several times, but gosh, she said, I'm just not going to... Uh, lose any sleep over it and even if he was a bad guy I think that it's going to weigh on her conscience and so that doesn't seem realistic and you can also argue that she's a beginner and so tossing the firebomb was just a mistake but why, why would you toss an explosive device at all the story wraps up nicely, but you do have to wonder where, of course, that jerk lawyer was. And frankly, many parts of it don't make sense. Uh, there were better ways to see this story turn out, and especially with how it was set up. I think it had something going for it. So 6 out of 10 bats here. So I think what you all may be asking, or at least in my head you are asking, is what happened here? So in 1978, well, first I guess I should say I'm going to be using the uh, phrase DC implosion. And the DC implosion is the popular label for the sudden cancellation of more than two dozen ongoing and planned series by the American comics publisher DC Comics in 1978. That sounds familiar. Actually, New 52 it sounds very familiar. So in 1978, after the DC implosion, it was decided that DC Comics' long-running flagship title Detective Comics was to be terminated with number 480. However, the decision was overturned following strenuous arguments on behalf of saving the title within the DC office. Despite being the better-selling title, Batman Family was instead merged with Detective, converting that book into a $1.68 page giant as of Detective number 481 in December and January 1978-1979. Uh, this arrangement lasted 15 issues. With issue number 496 in November of 1980, Detective reverted to its traditional size and price, thus effectively canceling Batman Family for good. So there you go. So they probably all believed um, that it was continuing on. I have to tell you, this DC implosion really sounds like the first generation of the new 52. Um, and that, I mean, if you think about, like, these letters were written, everything is... You know, the end of the issue, it says, be sure to catch Helena, such and such, and catch Robin and Batgirl on their own adventures in the next Batman family in two months. These were being written, and, you know, and one of the letters said, number 23, Batman's going to be returned. These issues were being written, and so it seems like these creators had no idea whatsoever, and that had certainly been true of the New 52, where this thing just popped out. Creators had no idea what books they were going to be on, that this thing was even happening, and that's why, you know, 
just lack of communication and and things being really confusing and continuity being out of whack and it really seeming like it was thrown together so if it's happened before and it it just seems like wow history is repeating itself because I honestly don't know I would like to hear from a knowledgeable person on did the DC implosion work was anything other than detective comics brought back or revert back to the original And if so, do you think that this DC implosion, is it a model for New 52? Do you think that because implosion failed, if it did fail, because I don't honestly know, do you think that New 52 will fail? That's actually something that I would really love to hear from you about because... I don't know, That's it's just sort of interesting. That seems like history is indeed repeating itself. I'll give you that food for thought as uh, I also give you a break, and I give my voice a short break since I am getting over um, a sickness here. Now when I come back, I will review Batgirl number 11, Birds of Prey number 11, and World's Finest number 3. But first, we have Zias's Radio Hour featuring something that somebody recommended to me a long, long time ago. I believe it was Jeffrey Taylor. Children's Work by Dessa. See you soon. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. My father was a paper plane. My mother was a windswept tree. My little brother's nearly twice my age. He taught me how to meditate. I taught him how to read. I grew up with a book in my bed. I got these dark circles before I turned ten. Heard my mother with her friends worry it was something she did to get such a serious kid. Now I've learned how to paint my face, how to earn my keep, how to clean my kill. Some nights I still can't sleep. The past rolls back, I can see us still. You learned how to hold your own, how to stack your stones, but the history is thick. Children aren't as simple as we like to think. Before you came along, I was a lone cub, fell in love with language, tried to tell the grown-ups about the storm clouds, the weather in my head, hadn't heard the word for melancholy yet. Then you came in five years behind, we thought you couldn't talk, turns out you were just shy. Mom said it was serious, Dad said you'd be fine, I thought you were the prophet of 1989. You were so tender, we thought something was wrong with you, so patient, we thought that you were deaf. You were so solemn, so tiny, but so ancient. Mom took you to see doctors, you scared her half to death, and I made you a library of tiny books with spines two inches high you didn't say too much but smile taught me how to quiet down my mind now i've learned how to paint my face how to earn my keep how to clean my kill some nights i still can't sleep the past goes back i can see us still you learned how to hold your own how to stack your stones but the history is thick children learn as simple as we like to
you slept in my bed And if I kept quiet I could hear all the voices in your head When the wagon tipped I prayed over your body I asked God to take the damage out on me Ten years later He finally gets the memo Sent it to accounting And knocked out my front teeth But you came too And took my hand And held my eyes And me and you Had a long walk home So we decided not to cry Now we've got a grown-up love And I know that's how it's supposed to be Same old story Mom gets Easter's Let's dad have Christmas Eve But I won't pretend Welcome back. I do have something important to tell you about after my back row review, but uh, first, you know, I have to do the review. So here we go. Back row number 11, Heart of Cold Steel. Writer Gabriel Simone, Pensor Ardian Sioff, Inker Vigenta Sefuentes, and Colorist Ulysses Areola. The issue begins with the sound off of the members of the disgraced, Catharsis, Bleak Michael, Bonebreaker, and of course, Nightfall. As this is going on, Batgirl takes a quick inventory of the gadget she has left, and while the Batgirl from a month ago would have doubted herself, she is a completely different Batgirl this month. Batgirl believes Nightfall to be Cherise Carnes, and she is taken aback by the fact that disgraced believe themselves to be heroes, and they want Batgirl to join them. Batgirl politely turns down the offer and engages the different members of the disgraced, doing the best with the tools that she has. Elsewhere, at Barbara's apartment, James Jr. is dropping an inebriated Elysia off. Elysia is very willing to be kissed, but James seems preoccupied with Elysia's roommate and says, in a menacing manner, that he wants the first time they are willing to be memorable. But he ends up going into the apartment to give Elysia a gift. The largest cat I have ever seen in my entire life. It is a purebred, long-haired Siamese named Alaska. Think back to Babs Sr. narrating the death of Babs's cat of the same breed, also called Alaska. Back with Batgirl, Bonebreaker is clocking Babs while Nightfall gets ready to stab her until Detective McKenna comes out of nowhere and points a gun at Nightfall. The members of the disgrace seem well acquainted with McKenna, and while they try to shake her confidence, McKenna does get Batgirl out of there and reveals that Nightfall is indeed Charisse. Batgirl and McKenna drive away, and McKenna catches Batgirl up on Charisse. McKenna takes Batgirl to her apartment, cleans her up, and tells her that Charisse underwent a great deal while she was in Arkham. When McKenna goes to get a beer, Batgirl starts wrapping off several questions about McKenna, her life, and her association with the disgraced. McKenna comes out with a gun and asks her own questions about Batgirl's associations. A beer to the face and a half Nelson later, McKenna talks about the near beginning of her career. A hostage situation in Arkham put McKenna's husband's life in jeopardy. McKenna froze, her husband died, and Charisse witnessed the whole thing. She later contacted McKenna. McKenna ends with the bombshell that they have a mole in the Bat family, and it happens to be Batwoman. Next up, Bat versus Bat. Okay, so in the beginning, Batgirl says that the Batgirl from a month ago would have doubted herself given that she is outmanned and outgunned, but this, this one, this is a different Batgirl, and I honestly don't believe her. The proof is in the pudding, and yes, Batgirl is able to handle her, herself in this particular fight, but how long will that last? 
because we've seen time and again how easily I think she is able to be put down. At least here she's smart and, and uses her remaining supplies well. I feel like Simone needs to go back and see what she's written in previous issues. Batgirl says this, I did not see that coming. They think they're the good guys? Whereas the previous issue, she stated that, you know, they, she thought that they were vigilantes thinking they are doing the right thing. How did she forget her first judgment in one issue? Um, I did realize, you know, going back and reading again, and I actually have read number 12, that there is some foreshadowing with Sharice uh, coming up behind Batgirl with a knife. But uh, I, I shall avoid the spoilers there. It's midday. And Alicia is drunk. Doesn't she work at a bar? Shouldn't she be more versed in how much alcohol is probably too much? The words uh, mention night, but the bright lighting and the shadows show it to be daytime, so that's a little confusing. Um, I don't know. Why can't you artistically make it night in the book? Uh, James checks in. He wonders where Babs is, but doesn't want to be alone with Alicia just yet. But hey, guess what, guys? He ends up going in and being alone with her. And what is with that cat? Who in the world designed this cat? I, I mean, look at how small the cat carrier is, right? When you've got the one panel. And then you see Alicia holding the cat and how large that is. I mean, he really had to shove that cat in there. It's like a bunch of clowns fitting into a clown car. I do wonder how Babs will react to this cat when she sees it. It is a wonder that Alicia is still alive, actually. Um, you know, I wonder what James has planned. Is this just to get back at Babs? Will Alicia be collateral damage, or is she going to make it through? And, you know, the way that James says he wants her first time alone together to be memorable, I don't really think that he means sex. If, if any of you have read Snyder's Detective Ron and saw the man hanging in the basement, I think you know where this may be going. Of course, I do wonder how Simone is going to treat James. Uh, let's talk about Deus Ex Machina, Detective McKenna to the rescue for sure. And Batgirl just gets into the car with McKenna, just goes to her apartment with her, as if she forgets all the things that have happened up to now, starting from issue number one. Elise McKenna gives us the backstory to Charisse, but she never really gets to how McKenna knows them and why. Why delay that? and throw us into some stupid fight between Batgirl and McKenna at McKenna's apartment. Batgirl gets ruffled, rattles off a bunch of questions, and then McKenna pulls a gun, and no, Batgirl does not freeze this time. She gets all Richard Nixon paranoid, wondering with whom Batgirl is working. I, I don't know, it just seems like really random and overly dramatic. Like, drama that people, like, force... McKenna finally tells us her story, but she leaves out the important part of how she's connected to Nightfall, and that's really all that matters. And McKenna uses the indistinct pronoun they to say that there is a mole in the Batman family. And and I do wonder who the they is. Is it DEO? We already know that Batwoman's um, with the DEO, obviously, and that really wouldn't be the end of the world. I mean... It's not like they're a criminal organization. And yeah, I do assume it's a disgrace, but I feel like it's utterly ridiculous that 
if if it, this is pointed to Batwoman, which is how the words and the panels and everything leads us to believe, I don't know. The only person Batwoman would not be with the disgrace. The only person with an MO that would fit the desires of Nightfall would indeed be Red Hood, since he too has made similar arguments to Batman, in fact, of the revolving door of Arkham and, and Blackgate. I, I could see him falling in line, but not Batwoman. So, you know, we're supposed to believe that the disgraced are they affiliated with the DEO? Because, I mean, in one breath, McKenna basically is linking Medusa, the DEO, and the Disgrace, and that she's obviously confused and not reading Batwoman. But, you know, that I don't know. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. It seems like a, a random coincidence to me, a way to bring Batwoman in. I don't think DEO, DEO agents would be concerned with petty car thieves, nor do I think the DEO would, would employ sociopaths that have such a controversial spotlight in the media, like Charisse. So... You know, the second time I read this, it makes even less sense than the first time I read it. I don't know if it's just this particular story, or... Uh, I, I don't honestly know. It, it A lot of the things just don't really add up, and it's as if one issue does not connect to the other issue, and Simone is forgetting what she's written about in the past. I, I give this 5 out of 10 bats. A and this is where I am at now... Because I'm on the TBU, I do read things concurrently as well, even though my show is um, sort of a month behind with everything. So, number 12, I, I'm i never going to be able to replicate, I think, just sort of like this breakdown that I had on, on the Batman universe, so you can check that out if you so desire on the, the newest comic cast that will probably come out next week. But the thing that really hits me is the fact that I am not enjoying this series, and because of that, it's really dragging down uh, the character of Batgirl for me, which is really heartbreaking, and I can't accept that Flashpoint, you just have to accept Flashpoint and everything will make sense, because I think that this is just terrible storytelling, and it's not written well, and things don't make sense, and it doesn't matter if this were Batgirl or if this were Black Bat, or if this were Batwoman, it's bad storytelling. So anyways, I guess, you know, there are some good issues that come out. And, you know, I don't begrudge comics if I haven't been enjoying them, and then a good one comes up, I'm not just going to rate it low. I try the best I can to be really objective about things. But this is really, I think, something that I want to know, because there are people out there that and I don't know if they listen to my show or they're just fed up because I do give negative reviews on Batgirl. There are people out there that enjoy this run, and I obviously I don't know if it's because they are more fan followers of Simone because I know that she does have a fan following, and I have nothing against you know personally against Simone because she she has shown that she can be a great writer, but something is going on with this book. And it's it's all over the place, people. It is all over the place. So what I would really like to know, and, and I've sort of offered this up before, more like email me if you are enjoying this story and, and you know, tell me if, if you know of people that are enjoying these issues and, and write in review. I'm going to open it up even more. I would like to host some sort of debate or a, a discussion between people that are enjoying... Backroll, the backroll run so far, 
and people that are not enjoying it. I I especially am interested to hear, you know, why you're you are enjoying it and to hear your side of the story. Like literally bring you on back row to Oracle like a nice little special. And I mean, obviously this probably seems like a trap because you know that I'm not enjoying it and you may feel like uh, you're going to be victimized and sort of put out there in the spotlight. Am I going to, and I'm going to attack you? But because you don't know me personally, and I, I just want to let you know that's not that's not the person who I am. Like I I really need to know why I guess why why you are enjoying it and sort of the merits that you see of it, and then you know hear from other people that are not myself and perhaps not my circle of friends that I talk to a lot and we have the similar opinions, why they don't like it. And I just think of uh, a variety of different people would be great to hear. So that is what I am asking for right now. Write into me if you are interested in setting up a time, a nice group of people coming together and and just talking about Batgirl and what's been going on if you like it, if you don't like it, okay? So I don't need an influx of people that don't like Like, the main people I really do want to talk to are the people that like it. Let's, I mean, that'd be great if I had three and three, six people to to come together, and then, of course, I'd be there. So I'd make a nice little seven. But that's, that is all I'm uh, wanting, because reading this book for me is, um, it, it's been getting increasingly difficult. And it's, it's like heart-wrenching almost to see a beloved character, my favorite character, be treated in this fashion with, with stories that, that aren't written well and don't make sense to me. So if you can help me out, make sense of it, and, and really turn around for me, I, I am very willing to listen to your opinions. So that is my plea. Remember, you can write in to me, oracle at gmail.com. Okay, next up we have Birds of Prey number 11, Tangled Up Inside. Writer Dwayne Swarzynski, artists Travel Foreman and Timothy Green II. Inkers Jeff Hewitt and Joseph Silver and colorist Gabe Altaib. Dubai, now. In the tower probably scaled by Ethan Hunt and Ghost Protocol, a group of board members discuss the future of their corporation and their support for deep core fracking. While the effects on the environment are serious, the huge revenue stream seems like it trumps any damage to Mother Earth. Who cares? Poison Ivy cares. A seemingly healed ivy wraps the board members up in leafy tentacles. The Amazon, one week ago. The birds are within the safe house, but are still struggling to make their way to the center of the place. As they work to open the door, the creepy plants continue their attack, coming from on top of the building. They finally get through the door, defending themselves all the way, but losing the pilot laden in the process. The birds help Ivy to the lower level, which has access to pure green. She says that there, she will be able to heal and deal with the creatures, called the perennial. They are a crude attempt at fusing plant and human genetics to create beings just like Ivy. Ivy takes a siesta in the center of the green and explains that the place is a lab which did green-friendly research and reveals that they assisted in the creation of her new biosuit, which allows her to channel her powers like never before. She may have enhanced powers, but this comes at a price. She is dying, and only her suit is keeping her alive. Dubai. One of the board members does not seem phased by Ivy's attack and calls in the chief of security, Mr. Washburn. With James Bond swagger, Washburn kicks down the door and suits up with toxic defoliant strapped to his back like a flamethrower. 
Ivy uses two employees like a shield, but Washburn is told that they are expendable and he is ready to blast through them. Back at the Amazon, Perennial are breathing down on their necks as Ivy stands and tells Dinah that she hopes she'll remember all the good times they've had and that their friendship was genuine. Ivy then tells the Perennial to stand down and obviously Dinah is confused as to why she didn't do that sooner. Add to that shock that the birds were injected with a toxin back in the jungle, and now, just like Ivy, they have six months to live. On the bright side, they will be given an antidote if they help punish those who are despoiling the planet, as well as fight off anyone who may try to stop them. Batgirl says they can get Batman to help. Dinah says Ivy can just kill them. Katana calls Ivy a traitor and fails at slashing her. Starling takes Dinah's view on the situation, even though now would have been a prime opportunity to say, I told you so. And Ivy thinks that there is nothing more honorable than saving the planet, and tells him that Plan B is by far the worst. For if any or all of the team members die, the toxins in their bloodstream will be automatically released, starting a global cleansing that at long last will allow the Earth to recover. Dinah accepts the fact that they must help, but Ivy is dead to her, Sicilian style. Dubai. In the end, Ivy drops the two employees and leaps out of the way of Washburn's toxic defoliant. All of a sudden, the birds burst in, and while the people are ecstatic to see superheroes, they realize their excitement is an error when Starling points a gun to the chairman's head and pulls the trigger. Next, good birds go bad. I have to say that even with how the previous issue ended, namely Ivy's sinister stare that I did not see the story taking this turn. I think we have all had reservations about Ivy on the team, but I for one was lulled into a false sense of security ever since the issue where Ivy actually saved the team from the warehouse explosion. And because I really saw Ivy as a hero, you know, despite some missteps, this betrayal I think was all the more shocking. I like that the love taps that we saw the perennial give the birds in the last issue had a function, and it, it drew uh, to the main storyline. This could also potentially lead back to the beginning when Ivy receives a briefcase from uh, that strange man, or, you know, the toxin is just innate to the perennial. I love the fact that Ivy has a backup plan far worse than the original plan, but they all inevitably lead to the same end goal. And those four panels showing her plan B along with her narration of what would happen was great. And the talks in the bloodstream really reminds me of Teen Titans, the animated series, and Slade and how he infected the Teen Titans, obviously, in order for Robin to be his apprentice, sort of forcing his hand. Now, the first thing that Batgirl asks after Ivy shows her power over the perennial is why they were lured into the building. And I just thought, how strange that is for the first question. Yes, the whole situation sort of smells funny, but at that point, how could they know Ivy has plans of her own, plans of betrayal? A better question would have just been, why? I love the panel and, and all the reactions of the birds when they find out about Ivy's plans, just utter shock and bewilderment. Now, Ivy says that she tried to convince them in an honorable way and without resorting to all of this. But where was that attempt? She never asked them before this little excursion, and basically having them drugged is not exactly honorable. It seems like she was anticipating this sort of reaction all along. As for the plotting, I like how the issue begins, really throwing you into something and then pulling you back into the past. But I think the issue would have benefited more from continuous action in the past after it backlashes and then working up to the present rather than going back and forth between the two. 
in general, I think the present scenes are weaker than the ones that take place in the past, but it is nice to see Ivy get back into her old game. I do wonder, however, you know, how, how did the birds get back from the Amazon, and, and what sort of happened in between? Is this something that will be explained in issues to come? We also learned quite a bit about Ivy that has not been mentioned before, mainly in regards to her origin, her power base, etc. Will we continue to learn more, or will there be more of a focus on, on this in the crossover involving the rot, if there is indeed a crossover? Because Ivy will be involved with that along with Swamp Thing. The fact that she's wearing a suit of sorts does beg the question as to how Choke's suggestion was able to break her biology down so, because he was, uh, he said that it would separate her plant self with her human self. I think, for the most part, that this issue does what it is supposed to, and that's to highlight Ivy, give more info about her, and really toss the team into a, a confusing time again. I, I do ask how much more they're going to be able to take. I mean, Choke, Dinah's murdering past, and now this. They're going to need some major counseling for sure. The art goes back and forth with Ivy and the Amazon. She's drawn as her old healthy self while lying on the Green Health Center, but when she stands up, she suddenly looks like her 70% human, 30% plant self again. I think I uh, quite rightly could call that um, uh, an error. I do love the art with Ivy just lying in the center of the green and, and becoming whole again. It's something so simple, but it was like someone really coming home again after a tiring week or a month and just being in the moment and becoming whole again. And I think that the images were able to do all that. I almost would have liked to just have a silent page with her, you know, with several panels showing the, the slow regeneration of Ivy. I think that would have been poetic. The chairperson in Dubai is also drawn strangely, and his oddly shaped face looks like he could be some sort of mutant or something. Uh, you have to kind of check that out. But I do give this a 7.5 out of 10 birds. The final issue I have for you is World's Finest number 3, Rebirth Part 3. Writer Paul Levitz, present day sequences, uh, penciler George Perez, inker Scott Kobush, and colorist Hi Fi. In the flashback sequences, artist Kevin McGuire and colorist Rosemary Cheatham. At the Fukushima nuclear plant in Japan, Power Girl is down at the hands of Haku, an irradiated monster, but Huntress continues hammering him with arrows from her crossbow. Haku begins throwing rubble at Helena, but he is telegraphing his moves, and she leads him right under a tank filled with coolant. Huntress pulls Power Girl out of the power plant, and then Power Girl wakes up and flies them the rest of the way, saying she believes Haku is the one who came through the portal with them. 45 months ago, London. Helena and Kara talk of the differences in food on this earth and Helena's father. And speaking of Batman, Helena has been doing some research on the heroes on this earth, but Kara does not seem very interested. She makes a joke about checking comparative anatomy as they leave, and Helena reminds her that they will meet next month under Trajan's column. Later, Kara is doing a great deal of research on programming, but she hits a wall, realizing she cannot make her own dimensional transport, but she can get someone to do it for her. 24 months ago. Kara is talking to her assistant, Somia, about the dimensional research and mentions something going on at Michael Holt's lab, which is very secretive. Kara changes quickly into an elegant party dress and tells Somia to find a party that both she and Holt are inviting to. 
Now, still flying from the plant, Power Girl drops Huntress and goes to rescue a downed fighter plane. It seems the plane was coming from Ginza, where Haku is wreaking havoc. Helena works on the ground saving people, while Power Girl is trying to take down Haku, using a satellite tower to knock Haku into Tokyo Bay. The two heroes know the fight is not over, and Power Girl hopes that Huntress has an idea as to what to do next. In the next issue, an idea, let's hope. Again, not much happening in this story. Uh, you know, there's a fight with Haku. Our heroes have a brief victory. We see black back flashes in two different times. Then there's another fight with Haku. We are learning more about our main characters, which probably is the most important. Uh, but the main action is really not furthered. We still don't know anything about Haku. What does he want? What exactly is he doing? It's also a little strange that our two heroes have a tough time, a really tough time with Haku in the beginning with, with nothing phasing him, and then all of a sudden Kara can just hit him with a radio tower. Come on now. Uh, that would have passed right through him with all the other stuff that he was sort of um, just waving away, or, or he would have melted it. I am a little concerned why Huntress is not worried after she is doused with coolant contaminated with radioactive waste. Isn't that a little dangerous? I really like the back and forth between um, Helena and Kara when they're in London. It was fun to see the actions and expressions passing as the conversation goes on, and I think that everything was um, laid out well panel-wise. It's interesting to see how much Kara's focused on the past, lending all of her energy to really finding a way of creating a portal and going home. And Helena, on, on the opposite side of the spectrum, she's really trying to get assimilated to this Earth, getting files on major heroes, and I think just just trying to deal with where they are now. So very, very different feelings, I think, coming from, from both of these uh, heroes. I also thought it was funny how she compared this Batman with her father and um, their relationships with Robin. Very interesting. Not as good an issue as the previous two, mainly because it just seems like the same thing is going on and on and on with Haku. It's just like a cycle, and I think it really needs to push forward, and hopefully it ends next issue because it, it should not last longer than four issues. I think it could have been wrapped up in three, to be honest. Seven out of ten shredded costumes. Okay, next up we have Babs in the Tube. Babs in the Tube is a segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film, and currently I am watching the 1966 Batman television series. Here we have episode 110, that was season 3, episode 16, The Funny Feline Felonies, that's a little alliteration for you. December 28th, 1967 was its air date, starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Burt Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Stafford Rep as Chief O'Hara, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and of course, Yvonne Craig as ba Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. Cesar Romero as a Joker, David Lewis as Warden Crichton and Eartha Kitt as Catwoman are the guest stars. Upon his release from Gotham City Prison, the Joker is immediately picked up by the Catwoman in her kitty car. 
They soon arrive at a sleazy hotel across the street from police headquarters, where the Catwoman shows the Joker an old parchment that will direct them to a hidden cache of gunpowder they will use to blast a hole in the federal depository and clean the place out. Before leaving, they alert the Batman by shooting at him from an open window. The Caped Crusader traces the gunfire to the hotel room and finds the Joker's prison garb and a corner from the parchment. Moments later, Batgirl arrives and makes off with the fragmented parchment. Returning to the library as Barbara Gordon, she finds the parchment was purloined from the very same library out of which she works. She locates a microfilm copy and discovers that it contained an ancient riddle, which when mixed with certain clues will lead to the hidden gunpowder. Barbara solves the riddle and goes to her father's office at police headquarters to call Batman via the bat phone and arrange to rendezvous with the dynamic duo at the home of little Louis Groovy, who owns the parchment's first clue, a nightshirt. The Batman and Robin arrive just as the Catwoman and the Joker arrive to steal the nightshirt. Joker tricks the duo into shaking hands and buzzes them with his deadly Joker buzzer, and he and Catwoman leaves with the shirt. Batgirl appears moments later to revive Batman and Robin and informs them that the shirt was only half the clue to the gunpowder's location and the dynamic trio speed for the home of Maud Clothier Carnaby Katz, who owns the clue's second half in the form of a crib. However, the trio arrive too late, or so it seems. Just outside the bushes, Joker, Catwoman, and their men wait in ambush for them. Well, gee, I, I, I... It, it was a little unbelievable to, to think of Joker and Catwoman teaming up together. I guess in this sort of universe, it's more believable than what's currently been going on, you know, in the comics and, and even in the past. And, I mean, with the gunshot at the beginning, it was interesting because it really reminded me of Batman Arkham City, where Joker actually, I mean, it almost attempts to assassinate Catwoman in the beginning of it. Um, but here, you know, Catwoman is shooting to... Grab the notice of Batman. The cat car is a very interesting little vehicle, and it's funny that you know it exists in the comics as well. And I don't know, <laughs> it's just very interesting to look at. And I wonder if uh, you know on display at San Diego Comic Con, they had all the Batmobiles used in you know th this TV show and then all the movies. Up to the um, up to and including the Christopher Nolan run and gosh, do they still have the cat car? I wonder where that is now. Uh, very interesting to see Batman and Robin do a bat crawl. It was kind of awkward looking, but then I thought to myself, huh, I kind of do something similar to that at my uh, MMA gym. However. We call it the gecko because, well, it's just very interesting. Uh, you know, I really like Batgirl. I feel like she did it a lot, but she sort of consistently comes forward with this message. Just the fact that females can do anything that a male can do. Um, so whenever they sort of look down at her or say something like, no, you should you should stay here because it's too dangerous, she'll she'll do what she wants to do, and I do respect that. I like how there's a little mystery uh, treasure hunt going on, which happens to involve everyone and even a little poem as to why they needed Batgirl, Robin, and Batman to know about all of it instead of doing it on their own. I still don't necessarily understand that. Catwoman's explanation doesn't really make sense. Uh, but, you know, you would think that Riddler would pop out because this is sort of his, um, his thing. So there you go. Uh, next up is everyone's favorite segment, <laughs> Shipper Spotlight.
about shippers get over your own shipping bullshit let, let, let me tell you about shippers <laughs> get over get get over your own shipping bullshit i love shippers 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 let me tell you about shippers stop talking about <laughs> ship ship shippers I love shippers. Dick and Babs. Dick 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 and Babs. Batman and Cat Catwoman. There we go. For the shippers, Batman's married to the Joker. To the Joker. There better not be Damien, Seth, Seth, Stephanie. Shippers, I'll kill them. Dick and Babs. Remember, Shipper Spotlight is where I pick one couple. It could be from TV or the movies or comics. And I examine the history of their relationship starting with their first hint of romance and then I tell you if they are hot or not and this one's coming out of the comics but it certainly connects with what is going on in Dark Knight Rises we've got Bane and Talia Al Ghul first hint of romance Bane of the Demon number one Bane says that he does not have much experience with women and never expected to die at the hands of one but he's taken in by Talia in issue number two, he erroneously saves Talia from a large eel and forces Talia into a kiss. But then she willingly continues the kiss, and the next we see them is actually in her bedroom. After Bane officially enters the League of Assassins, Talia's father, Ra's al Ghul, considers Bane a potential heir to his empire and wants his daughter to marry him. However, Talia later rejects the brute, regarding him as merely a cunning animal compared to the more cultured intelligence of his predecessor. And after Batman defeats Bane... Raish agrees that Bane was unworthy of his only daughter. And Bane of the Demon was written by Chuck Dixon, I should mention that. Now, hot or not, well, you know, sometimes it is hard to feel sorry for uh, the big log since he broke the bat. But here you do sort of want him to get together with Talia, and she acts so cold to him after they, well consummated their relationship. Whether he didn't satisfy her due to the overuse of venom, bad side effects, don't you know, or he was just a momentary dalliance to fulfill her needs apart from Batman, we'll never know. But he does seem the most human and caring with Talia, and that's why I think it would be a good relationship to have, at least for him. So hot or not, I do say that this is hot. Remember, you can make any sort of request for me. You can send it to Batgirl to oracle at gmail.com on the next shipper spotlight uh we do have a request by charlie nehemiah of the pre-crisis earth one superman and wonder woman so i'll be sure to hit that up as for my literature recommendation i'm currently reading anna karenina by leo tolstoy yes it is a long one because you know when you attach the name tolstoy to it it's going to be uh, a movie is coming out, I should say a remake or a modern take on it is coming out in November and that sort of got me um, to finally do it. I've said for years that I was going to read Anna Karenina. I'm finally doing it. And it's funny because 
You'd think that it would all be about the title character and her affair with an officer, uh, but you really don't encounter the the, the main title character until uh, you know a hundred pages in or so, and she's really only one of five major characters. And then so we the, each of those are spotlighted, and then there are sort of four minor story arcs or minor characters associated with them. So. It's it is a larger cast than you would believe. Uh, this may be a repeat literature recommendation from last month. Uh, I feel like I'm having some deja vu here, but uh, since I'm actually like halfway through it now, I feel like better able to actually recommend it. So yeah, it's just about this dutiful wife that you know she married for for duty and I suppose convenience you could almost say rather than love but then she finds love in the arms of this officer and of course now she's having an affair and and sort of the repercussions of that but there are also other major characters um, that have their own story along with them uh, like Lennon the farmer and sort of his broken heart which is uh, connected to the officer that Anna Karenina is having an affair with. So it's very interesting. I I recommend it, but only as long as if you're able to read Pride and Prejudice, I think you'll be fine reading this one. Uh, But if if you're more into the lighter reads, then I I don't think that this would be a good choice. But see the movie, perhaps. It is supposed to be very different. One of my friends sent me something that it, it all takes place within a theater, within a play sort of atmosphere. And then if the character is really have to leave reality then they will leave and 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 be on the outside world and that is obviously that's that is a very modern interpretation i do really want to see the older version um it's probably not the first but the one with vivian lee i think that would be a great one to see so hopefully when i finish it i can find that copy somewhere i guess i'll have to go to the video store or something because i don't know if it's on netflix but anyways uh if you have any questions or comments be sure to send them to me at batchgirl to oracle at gmail.com continue to sign that petition to get batgirl your one back into production and connected with that again go to uh the bird and the bat and and really let's put that challenge forth as well once again thanks to milehighcomics.com for sponsoring batgirl the oracle the barbacorn podcast thanks also to tv.com for the episode summary for the funny feline felonies you know, I'm reminded, please write in if you want to have a, a discussion slash debate on here and you want to come on. I think that would be great. I, I think it would be eye-opening and, and I am I am ready to listen. I, I don't have a closed mind and it would be great to talk with people that, you know, are not, not in the circle that I talk with every day and I think that would be great for this audience as well because, hello, for 44 episodes, you've only been listening to me and my opinions and yes, I've had some co-hosts and everything, but it's probably primarily been me and so I do want to offer other people other opinions so please write in if you are at all willing on coming on uh, and telling me why you like Batgirl or why you do not until next time fly on Babs lovers just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle who knows Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?